Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. We're going to take our Bibles this evening and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. You've already seen, uh, likely, the title of what we're going to be sharing this evening as we talk about what it means to be entered into just warfare. This is a topic that's in the news right now. And I thought it would be well for us to fill in the blanks from a Christian and biblical perspective on this theme and harmonize our thoughts with God's Word more than what we're hearing on the news. Franklin Roosevelt, of course, described December 7th, 1941 as a day that would live in infamy. On the 8th, the next day in 1941, the Congress and the Senate of the United States, except for one member, all together unified to declare war on Imperial Japan. So how many civilians died during World War II? I mentioned this last week. How many civilians died during World War II? The number might be staggering to most if you haven't thought about it. According to most estimates, there were 38 million civilians who died during World War II. Anybody know what country lost the most? What country lost the most civilians? I hear Russia, I hear Germany. It's going to surprise you. China, 8 million in China during World War II. You say, what? Well, there were the Japanese invasions of China going on and other, all kinds of interaction, but 8 million Chinese of the 38 million civilians, that's civilians who died during World War II. How many civilians died in Japan during World War II? Civilians. I'm, I'm focusing on civilians. About a million, about 132 million, or 132,000 rather, with the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. How many English citizens died during World War II? Feel like you're in history class tonight? Is anybody awake here tonight except me? I know I'm talking, but how many uh, Brits? Oh, you oh, you're awake. He's oh, <laughs> I know you. <laughs> That's debatable, Brother Loy, right now. Okay, 70,000, and between September 1940 and May of 1941, during that period of about nine months, 40,000 died, most of them in London because of the German air raids. So how many German citizens or civilians died during World War II? The number is one and a half to three million. Those are terrible estimates. And then this one we better know. So how many Jewish people died during World War II? Six million. Six million. Now why do you bring that up? Well, let's just take it a step further. That was a declaration of war, and you heard something of the result of it. 38 million civilians would die before the war was over. September 11, 2001, four hijackers, or four airplanes were hijacked, of course, and we had uh, 9-1-1-2001. It took us until the 18th, a week later, for the United States Congress to pass a bill that authorized President Bush to use military force to destroy terrorism. And the war on terror began. These numbers are really surprising and, and staggering. We hear about it, the war on terror. All right, the war on terror began. September 18th, 2001, according to Brown University, the United States of America invested $8 trillion in the war on terror. And how many deaths have been a result 
of the war on terror? How many deaths? I'm not talking about American servicemen. I'm just talking about global deaths as a result of the United States declaring a war on terror. This is going to surprise you. Did me. Between 4.4 and 4.7 million. What? Yes. Between 4.4 and 4.7 million deaths in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, Syria, and Yemen. 200,000 Iraqi civilians. Afghanistan alone, $2.3 trillion, 70,000 Afghan police and military officers, and 46,000 Afghani citizens died as a result of the United States of America declaring war on terrorism as a result of 3,000 of our citizens dying in the World Trade Towers and elsewhere. All right, let's move it forward. 7th of October, 2023. Hamas insurgents invade Israel, killing 1,400, wounding another 3,400 people, and they've taken nearly 300 Israeli citizens and others from other countries, some 20 different countries, captive. The next day, Israel declared war on Hamas. And as Israel's declared the war on Hamas, the question that is presently being asked, is the war in the Middle East a just war? And my, the voices around the world that have been crying out for peace to be declared and for a ceasefire. According to the International Palestine website, there have been 8,300 Palestinians who have died so far. Any death is a tragedy. But I think proportionality here ought to cause our antennas to go up. So there have been 8,300 who have died, 3,600 of our children. Al Jazeera reported that there are 2.3 million Palestinians in Gaza enduring, quote, suffering that no human being should ever have to endure. So, what's been the result of late? What are we hearing and seeing around the world as a result of the death of 8,300 Palestinians as Israel has fought back against what happened. What are we seeing around the world? Anybody give me some places and events? What's happening? Yeah, the, the Jews are being called out as aggressors. That's happening if you're watching the news. Yeah, what's happened? What's that? I'm sorry, I can't hear. Oh, yeah, anti-Semitism. It's running rampant. Where do we see it? College campuses in America. 100,000 people marching in the streets in Turkey, uh, 20,000 people marching in the streets in London. Uh, we have uh, campuses that are rioting and things that are being said. In fact, I pulled some statistics on this. Anti-Semitism in London this month increased 1,335% month over month. Okay, this is what's happening. And nine of 10 anti-Semitic events in the United States today that are happening are not being prosecuted. I just found this to be a little bit interesting, not more than a little bit interesting. So back to some numbers. We had 2,403 United States servicemen die in Pearl Harbor. And we took the lives of 112,000 in Hiroshima and Nagasaki as a result. A million Japanese civilians would die, but in just those two bombs 
And every American at that time thought it was just. People were lining up to defend our country and to get involved in a war against such terrible aggression. This evening, as we come here and listen to our news, 1,400 civilians were killed on October 7th. 300 civilians were taken captive, and 8,300 Palestinians have died. And all we're hearing in the news is, we've got to lay down arms. Uh, we need some peace in the Middle East. And we do, and we shouldn't take that lightly. But folks, it is a staggeringly interesting statistic to look at. And we have to ask the question, why the disparity? Why the difference between these numbers? As you go back historically and see, all right, you had this many people die, 3,000 in the Twin Towers, and we don't even know it, but 4.2 million people died as a result. We're not even aware of it until we look it up. But why, what, what's happening? And I think the only answer that you can possibly give to that question is, it's a God thing. Isaiah 44 and verse 1 says, Israel whom I have chosen. And regardless of the way you look at the future prophetically, you have to look at the past historically. And when you look at the past historically, the Bible is very Jewish, right? And because of that attention that God has given in choosing the Jewish people, I think there's a contradictory attention in the world round about us. And here's another thing, and I promise I'm going to get into this outline. But it's been an interesting thing for me to consider. Did you know that back in 1993, Israel gave the Palestinian Authority limited control of Gaza, Jericho, and the West Bank? Okay, that's 30 years ago when people are yelling about, we need a two-nation solution or a one-nation solution. That one-nation solution won't be led by Israel. You can guarantee that. When they say, we need a two-nation solution, 30 years ago, Israel gave Gaza and Jericho and part of the West Bank to the Palestinian Authority. Go ahead, folks. Do your best with it. Now, Gaza is a beautiful beachfront community along the Mediterranean. I've been along the Mediterranean in Lebanon. I've been along the Mediterranean in Israel. I've not been in Gaza, but I can pretty much guarantee you the topography is much the same. It's some of the most beautiful Mediterranean uh, footage that you'll ever find anywhere in the world. All right, what's happened? In 2006, the Palestinian Authority allowed elections and during those elections, Hamas took control of Gaza, all right? So since 2006, Hamas has been the elected authority in Gaza. You all get that? So they have their own, if you will, opportunity to create their own culture. Oh, but there's a fence around it. It's nothing more than an outdoor prison. The fences around it, folks, in order to keep the Palestinians from coming into Israel and creating havoc. Well, that's not what I hear in the news. Did you hear in the news that the Egyptian border before the war only allowed 200 Palestinians to, to travel into Egypt on a daily basis? That's, that's, that's it. Top limit, 200 a day from Palestine into Egypt. Did you hear in the news that one out of nine people living in Gaza had jobs in Israel and they crossed that border every day to go into Israel? Oh, I didn't hear that either. But that's reality. The Palestinian Authority has, under Hamas, had the opportunity to enjoy some measure of self-rule. And in that self-rule, what have they done? They've dug a lot of tunnels. And that brings us to the point of asking some questions this evening. You see, there are Christians tonight who are increasingly disenchanted with the whole topic 
that's happening around about us. And there are those who, even in the news and even in the writing of articles, are say, saying things like, this isn't our war, shouldn't Christians be for peace? And they're quoting passages that we know well. For instance, in Matthew 5 and verse 39, Jesus says, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. And we know that Jesus told those who would try to live by the sword in Matthew 26, when Peter cuts off the ear of Malchus, Jesus says, put up your sword. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 12, as much as possible in us we're to dwell at peace with all men. So, people are asking, and we're going to try to answer it biblically this evening, should Israel enter into a war with Palestine? Shouldn't they be more willing to negotiate peace? And we noted last week that there are three common positions when it comes to the topic of war. What are those three common positions? I heard one. Passivism, activism, selectivism. So we're going to be focusing on selectivism this evening. Those who practice selectivism have some things that they hold in common. One, the selectivist who says sometimes war is just. The selectivist understands that all human life is precious. All human life is precious. In Genesis chapter 1, God says in verse 27, He created us in God's image. And that doesn't, that, that, that crosses every nationality, every socioeconomic situation. All humanity has created the image of God and all humanity is to be considered precious because of that. And God says that human life is to be protected. So we know about Cain slaying his brother Abel, and we know that God gave Cain a mark and sent him out, and he was distraught over the mark as he went out from, we don't know exactly what that mark was, but as he went out from the garden. But after Noah came out of the ark in Genesis chapter 9, God changed things. And in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, God inaugurates something new. I've often thought that if you ever wanted to meet the world's greatest PTSD survivor, it would be Noah. Noah's neighborhood was gone. Noah's garden was gone. Noah's neighbors were gone. There wasn't a tall tree standing on the planet when Noah came out of the ark. He was a PTSD survivor. As he came out of the ark, God is going to reestablish things through Noah and his family. And in the reestablishment, he says, okay, from here forward, Genesis 9 and verse 6, if somebody takes somebody else's life by man, that person's life, that murderer's life is going to be taken. So he inaugurates the death penalty, which is owned by the government. And we know that because Romans 13 says, the government doesn't bear the sword in vain. So God commands that human life be protected. And God commissions government to punish evildoers. The government, after all, is not to be feared by those who are doing well, but by those who do evil. And some laws, this is the part where we get to selectivism, some laws are not to be followed. So give me some biblical for instances. I've listed some references here for you. If you're real fast in Bible drill tonight, you might be able to look them up. But some biblical for instances of God's great ones who didn't necessarily obey the law of their time. Think of some? Yes, Anne. 
Okay, when it goes against God's Word, but can you give me some, for instances, of people who… Randy? Yeah, Daniel. He knew the law, said you couldn't pray, but he prayed anyway. Mandatory abortion in Egypt, Exodus chapter 1. And so, uh, the parents of Moses, seeing that he was a goodly child, uh, protected him by putting him in the Nile. They did not do what Pharaoh commanded. They were, they were citizens who were disobedient to the law. Give me another one. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all right? They would not bow down before the image that had been placed out on the plains of Dura. Yes. That's the central passage, passage Brother Ken. So, in the book of Acts, chapter 5, uh, Peter makes that statement, it's better for us to obey God than for us to obey man, Acts chapter 5 and verse 29. And so, that, that's a reference that every Christian ought to be aware of. Peter's being told, you can't preach. And when Peter was told, you can't preach, he looked at the authorities and he said, well, it'd be better to obey God than to obey men. Now, there's something that all of those champions have in common. And one thing that they have in common, it seems, especially as you look at Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, and Peter, and Paul, and our Lord, when they were disobedient to the government's authority, they were gentle about it and willing to pay the price. If the government want to exact the price by placing him in prison, now Paul was willing to say, I'm going to appeal to Rome. He had that right. He exercised his rights as a Roman citizen. But he still was kind in paying the price that the government exacted upon him. Now, it's a little different for Americans, but not much. It's a little different in that we do live as Americans with rights that have been granted to us. But don't forget those rights that have been granted to us are exercised by the authority over us. And sometimes we become so self-focused about our rights as Americans that we fail to remember that even when our rights are being violated, we need to have a proper conduct and disposition toward the authorities over us and a willingness, if need be, to pay the price even when it's unjust. And the biblical illustrations are people who were unjustly. In fact, the Bible is going to tell us that the reward really comes when you accept the wrong unjustly. That's where the trigger point is for many American Christians today. So, when we look at this third option, we're looking at it through a biblical lens and we're understanding that selectivists note that one, the Bible does not prohibit the taking of all life. The Bible does not prohibit the taking of all life. Now, the pacifists would want us to believe that, but Genesis chapter 9 and Romans chapter 13 make it clear, no, that's not what the Bible's teaching. In fact, many of the commandments in the Old Testament required a death penalty, even for the disobedience to parents or the blasphemy against the name of the Lord. Two, God's Word contains rules of warfare. Take your Bibles with me for a moment and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy chapter 20. Now, we want to be careful. The rules of warfare in the Old Testament applied to a theocracy. Israel was a theocracy, not a democracy, not an oligarchy, not a monarchy. Israel was a theocracy. So, what do we mean by that? We mean Israel was directly under the authority of God. We're not. So, the Old Testament rules with regard to conduct and warfare 
were written for a theocracy. But these rules contain important principles for us to apply today. So I'm saying by that, I don't believe it would be well for Christians to pick up arms and enforce even their biblical worldview, which is now a buzz in the news, on others. We're not a theocracy. We are a democracy, but biblical principles from God's Word ought to be in the marketplace. And you and I are the ones to bring them there, okay? So we're the voices in the marketplace of God's Word. Isn't that an exciting thing? So here we are in Deuteronomy chapter 20, and you're going to notice verse 1 begins, when thou goest out to battle against thine enemies. And God's going to give some very practical instruction with regard to the armies going to war. In verse 7, he says, what man is there that hath betrothed the wife? So the leader, the officers, verse 5, are going to speak to the people. This is one of the things they're going to offer. What man is there that has betrothed the wife and has not taken her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man take her. And you think, wow, that's crazy. How would there be that happen? Well, they had the betrothal. They could be in an engagement situation and betrothed. They were called wives, all right? But he hasn't been with her. Their marriage hasn't been consummated. Go home. Verse 8, the officers shall speak further unto the people. They'll say, what man is there that is fearful or faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest his brother's heart faint as well as his heart. If you're a coward, go home. We don't want you here. We don't want you uh, causing other people's hearts to become filled with cowardice. Verse 13, and when the Lord thy God hath delivered it into thine hand, thou shalt smite every male thereof with the edge of the sword. He's talking about not making peace, but now pushing the war forward. Smite every man, verse 14, but the women and the little ones and the cattle and all that's in the city, even all the spoil thereof, shalt thou take unto thyself. Thou shalt eat the spoil of thine enemies, which the Lord thy God hath given thee. Spare the women, spare the children. Kill the men. All of them. This is Old Testament warfare. Verse 19. When thou shalt besiege a city for a long time in making war against it to take it, thou shalt not destroy the trees thereof by forcing an axe against them. For thou mayest eat of them, and thou shalt not cut them down. For the tree of the field is man's life, to employ them in the siege. Only the trees which thou knowest, that thou they be not trees for meat, or not fruit trees, thou shalt destroy and cut them down. Thou shalt build bulwarks against the city. So be selective even when you put up the walls of defense. Don't cut down fruit trees. You can eat off those fruit trees. Cut down other trees. What was the pattern, by the way, of the Romans when they besieged a city? If they really wanted to wipe out a city before they left, they did what? Yeah, they salted the earth. They made it so they couldn't have gardens afterwards. Now, that's contrary to the Old Testament law. The Old Testament would have said, no, no, you don't do that. Uh, that's crazy. We're going to come back to that thought a little bit later on as we deal with the topic of just warfare. Jesus told his disciples that there were times that would come that they'd have to carry swords. Here's a Bible reference you might want to go to, Luke chapter 22. For all of you who wonder about Second Amendment rights in the United States, grab hold of Luke chapter 22 and let this one sift in for just a minute. Luke chapter 22, the Lord's talking to his disciples as he talks to his disciples, he's talking to Peter about how Peter would deny him in verse 34. And then in verse 35, he says, and when I said you without purse or scrip or shoes, did you lack anything? And he said, no, Lord. He's talking back about a time when he sent them out as witnesses. He said, I told you not to take any money and no shoes. Didn't I take care of you? And they said, yes. Now watch what he says. Different times are coming. So he says, but now 
he that hath a purse, let him take it. Likewise his scrip, he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. He was reckoned among the transgressors for the things concerning me have an end. He says, I'm going to be dying, reckoned among the transgressors. I'm going to be considered a sinner. He's going to die on the cross. But his final instruction to his disciples is, hey, if you have to sell your garment, buy a sword, buy it. Was he sending them out in an army? No. We're going to look at another passage where Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this earth. I'm not sending you out to conquer with a sword. So why are they buying swords? Self-defense. He's sending his, his own disciples out with swords for self-defense. So no, we don't see in the Bible uh, an absolute um, doctrine that says no picking up arms. Even Jesus told his disciples to pick up arms. So we can note that finally John the Baptist did not castigate soldiers uh, when they came to him and tell them they needed to get out of the army. In fact, there are several righteous soldiers that are spoken of in God's Word. You have a, uh, <clears throat> you have a centurion from Capernaum who was well known for his righteousness, having helped to build the synagogue. You have Cornelius at the book of Acts who's crying out for the gospel to come to his people. So I'm going to begin this now with this question. So if we agree that selectivism is biblically based, then we ask, all right, when is it to be exercised? How do we exercise just war? And we're going to fly a little bit under the radar, and when we fly uh, through this this evening, if you have a pen ready, we're going to look at things that have headings, and most of those headings don't have any references by them. So I'm going to ask you to help me supply some references. I'm going to give you some I've prepared on the topic. But when we talk about just war theory, this wasn't invented in 2023 to deal with Hamas versus Israel. Just war theory finds its origins with the Grecians, then with the Romans, and probably for the first 300 years after the church began, the church was predominantly pacifistic. And then the church begins to get more activated, and especially when Rome wed the church to the government. So now by the time you get to about 400 AD, you have Augustine, who's the theologian of the era, working his way through the concept of just warfare. About 900 years later, you're going to see another major tome by Thomas Aquinas come up on just warfare. So the conversation we're about to have very quickly tonight is an old conversation that's been had both within Christianity and outside of Christianity. When is it right to pick up arms? When is warfare right? And so we begin with what the ancients would have called jus ad bellum, or jus ad bellum. That means justice before war. Think these things through before you pick up the sword. When the decision to declare war is made, there are certain principles that must be kept in mind. What are the principles? First, is it a just cause? War should be entered into because of a serious wrongdoing. And the two most serious wrongdoings that need to be righted, one, if it's because of self-defense, and two, 
if you're seeking to defend the innocent. So can you think of any references that have to do with self-defense or defending the innocent? I'm going to go, go to a couple of obscure ones for you today. You might want to write these down because they sure are interesting. So self-defense, there are some who are plagued with doubts even about defending their home. I don't think you should be. I'm going to go to Exodus chapter 22. Exodus chapter 22. We read in verse 1, if a man steal an ox or a sheep or kill it or sell it, he will restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Exodus 22 verse 2. Let me read it. You tell me what it's saying. If a thief be found breaking up and be smitten that he die, there shall no blood be shed for him. What's that saying? If a thief be found breaking up and he be smitten that he die, there shall no blood be shed for him. Darlene? Right. Darlene just was straight up right. She said police or someone in the homeowner, somebody's breaking in and you stand your ground. That's, that's the title people use, don't they? I think you can put an asterisk by Exodus 22.2. That's a stand your ground passage. God's saying if somebody's breaking in and they die because of it, they're a thief. No blood for that. that that's a just uh, defense. I'll give you another one. This one I think many of you are aware of, but go to Exodus chapter 21. We're right by it. Exodus 21 verse 22. If men strive and hurt a woman with child so that her fruit depart from her and no mischief follow, he shall surely be punished according as the woman's husband will lay upon him. He shall pay as the judges determine. And if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning. What's this saying? Yes. That's right. The unborn is equal in this circumstance as the living. So there's a passage for all those who wonder about the rightness or wrongness of abortion. So let's read it again. If a man strive and hurt a woman with child so that her fruit depart from her and no mischief follow. In other words, the child lives and is healthy. He's going to be punished according as the woman's husband will lay upon him. There's a fine. He's going to pay the judges. But if any mischief follow, life for life. In other words, if that little baby dies, that's death penalty. Okay, so we're back in just cause. Well, the epitome of just cause is self-defense or the murder of the innocents. Has that happened recently? Now, don't forget while we study this this evening, there are some people on this planet that know the Old Testament a whole lot better than we do. And a whole lot of them live in Israel. And they give their lives to the study of passages like we're looking at. So if we're trying to be diplomatic with them and say, you know, you ought to lay down your arms. These are the passages that are ringing in their hearts. And by the way, those passages are God's Word. Okay, so is it a just cause? Is the intention right? Is the intention right? 
So no one should enter into war to, to win an election, amen? You don't get into a war to, to build the industrial military machine. It's good for the economy to be in war. You know, we can just have all these factories working. It's good for my election chances. That is not why. I'd write by there Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. And it's not just the uh, military-industrial complex that initiates wars, that's for sure. But in, uh, in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, a very well-known passage, Micah 6 and verse 8 says, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Do justly. So what other things cause people to jump into war? And we'd say, that's unjust. Not just, what? Land grabbing. Yeah, Russia's trying to move on in on Ukraine. Both of them are saying they have cause. But uh, by the way, how many people have died in that? 500,000 Russian soldiers, 300,000 Ukrainian soldiers have died. Why aren't people just rising up all over the world and protesting and saying, enough is enough. Let's lay down our arms. I, I just want you to see the, the proportionality of these arguments this evening. 8,000 people have died in Gaza. The whole world's going crazy. 800,000 people have died in Ukraine, Russia. Where's the protest? Interesting. Okay? So, yeah, you could say not just land grabbing. Anybody here of, um, yeah, Mary? Religious battles. Yeah, yeah, we want to change the whole culture into our religion. And sometimes that's Sunni and Shiite, right? Okay, it's not just Christian and Muslim. Uh, that happens between this, yeah, and, and Hindu. Hindu and Muslim. You know, look at Pakistan, India. Um, and, and then there are genocidal people. Um, if you look at the Armenians and what, what happened to them in the last century, it, it's just an awful genocide. And it's happening today in China. And so there are people that go to war without right intentions. Is there a right authority? And this is a critical concern. Is there a right authority? Individuals do not have the right to independently declare war. Only duly seated political authorities can do so. When you go back to the founding of America, one of the biggest challenges that was being faced is, do we have the, do we have the right as patriots to declare war on England? And so in, in coming together about that, there was a declaration of independence that was drafted. And why was that drafted? To say, we're a duly formed organized government. We're not individually declaring war. We're doing this rationally and, and ethically. Governments declare war. Can you think of a passage that would be a good text for that? I might have said Romans 13 earlier. I meant Romans 12. I'd write by that Romans chapter 12 verses 1 to 7 because in Romans chapter 12, 1 to 7, we have God gives the sword to the government. That, by the way, that principle is what protects us from vigilantism, and that principle is what protects us from even melting down into anarchism. And by the way, that is a principle that needs to be understood by all those who have a militia mentality. Militia mentality does not square with what you want to practice when it comes to warfare. 
No little militia off in the woods ought to be declaring themselves to be a government. Government declares war. Others that do that would have a hard time wrestling through Scripture on the justice of their campaign. Next, will there be proportionality? Will there be proportionality? Those who engage in warfare need to count the cost. And so, I'm still in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, to do justly. I also wrote in Ezra chapter 7, Ezra chapter 7 and verse 6, where you have another interesting principle that's being developed. It says, uh, well, that's not the right passage. That ever happened to you? Oh, there it is, 26. That's a help. If I could read, I could be in tr- I'd be in trouble. Ezra chapter 7, verse 26. I'll start with 25. Thou, Ezra, after the wisdom of the Lord that's in thy hand, set magistrates and judges, which may judge over the people that are beyond the river. Then he says in verse 26, whoever will not do the law, the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily upon him, whether it be to death or to banishment or to confiscation of goods or to imprisonment. Oh, there's your options. There are options here. You don't have to kill everybody. It might be banishment. It might be the confiscation of goods. It might be imprisonment. It might be death but proportional. Count the cost and decide uh, whether that cost is right or wrong so it's proportional to what you're dealing with. And finally, is war the last resort? Romans 12 and verse 18, as much as possible in you dwell peaceably with all men. So we've dealt with before war. What questions do we ask? These are the five classic questions that those who deal with the topic of just warfare will always ask. Is it a just cause? Is the intention right? Is there a right authority? Will there be due proportionality? Is war a last resort? By the way, listen, the questions I just asked, these are normal questions outside of the Christian ethic. Within the Western ethic, these are the questions that those who engage in war ask. What we're doing is saying, do these questions line up with biblical principles? And the answer is going to be yes. Every one of them lines up with biblical principles. And so when you go to war, we ask those questions. And then when you're in war, now you're just in bellow or juice in bellow. You're in war. So after war has been engaged, when a ceasefire is called, or before a ceasefire is called, rather, you conduct yourself carefully. There's supposed to be discrimination. Only legitimate targets are to be engaged. So there's a commitment to try as much as possible to avoid striking civilians, to avoid striking the media, to avoid striking those who are providing aid. So we read from Deuteronomy earlier, and we were told, they were told to go in, you could kill the men, but not the women and children. So there's discrimination there. So what's happening right now? The whole world's up in arms over it. (laughs) That literally. Um, What's happening now? You've got Hamas people, and where are they? They put themselves under hospitals and sent, yeah, yeah, hiding behind women and children. This is not normal, okay? A a normal soldier in a, a culture of care, if you will, would never do that. A normal soldier, can you imagine taking a group of American soldiers and saying, hey, we've we got a great idea. Uh, we're going to put the bunkers 
right next to the elementary school in your neighborhood. The normal soldier would say, no way, we, you, you can't do that. You're putting our children at risk. This is not a normal situation. And so that ought to cause some sympathy, both for the people who are going to be harmed, as well as for the people who are saying, we've got to protect our own citizens from what's happening. Yes, Steve? Yeah. Yeah. So what Steve's saying, it has war changed because they're putting bomb vests on children. That's not just war. That's terrorism. And there's a huge difference between the terrorist and how the terrorist acts and those who are on the other side trying to act in an ethical fashion of just warfare. Yeah, and then they're using it against those who are you know, we're talking tonight, and we need to realize that Israel's in my mind and heart. We need to realize that Israel is partner with us in the Judeo-Christian ethic. And so it's no wonder that we're going to the Old Testament to find our principles for just engagement. But we're dealing with a different mindset. We're dealing with the mindset of a terrorist. I'm going longer this evening than I meant to. I apologize. But proportionality is a word you hear in the news a lot right now. And what we're do- talking about by that is, all right, as little force is necessary to win. And that principle comes right out of Deuteronomy when he said, don't tear down the fruit trees. You know, reduce the force. We're not, we, we don't need to blast everything off the planet. So as little force as possible to win. And no intrinsically unethical beings should be employed. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, what Steve just illustrated with, bombs on kids. Um, back in the book of Um, If you're writing down references in the book of Genesis chapter 34, you remember how uh, Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, had gone off and entered into a relationship with Shechem, and how her brothers uh, said, you know, it might not be a bad thing for you to marry our daughter, or our sister rather, but she can't marry an uncircumcised man. So all of Shechem's people were circumcised, and when they were circumcised, and we're not able, right now, they're not in fitness for battle, the sons of Jacob went in and slaughtered them. And Jacob was heartbroken. Jacob said to his sons, what have you done? Don't you realize you're going to cause me to stink among our neighbors? They were using unethical warfare as they entered into that battle. So no intrinsically unethical means should be employed. And then finally, so what happens after the battle is done? After the battle is done... There's a wrestling with where will the boundaries be and what will the status quo be? Will it be where it was before? And what will the punishment for war crimes be? And those are real. When you look at the, uh, the boundaries, you can put a reference there if you want to do more study on this. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 8, that topic is discussed in the Old Testament. When it comes to war crimes, you can put Judges 1, verses 6 and 7. Because in Judges 1, verses 6 and 7, one of the kings loses his big toes and his thumbs. And Joshua says to him, you know what? That's exactly what you did to other kings. So we're going to do it back to you. Uh, You're suffering the result of a war crime. Victim compensation comes into bear. Can we make reparations uh, to those? And by the way, that's been a problem that's uh, caused nothing but grief. You ask any person that was in Germany during the times after World War I, and reparations can be 
uh, more cruel than war? And then finally, can terms of peace be agreed upon? Can terms of peace be agreed upon? Lots of things to talk about. I apologize for taking more time than I intended this evening. But it's obvious, I think, in my heart, this has been something that's been brewing because it's what we're hearing. Is this a just war? And it can be on one side and not be on the other. And so when we see the world roundabout all inflamed, we need to be asking, who is operating according to what traditional justice would look like? And this evening, what you've looked at is that which would be considered typical terms of justice. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.